Chris Denson, you guys, your host of Innovation Crush, here with Eric Bell. Say hello, Eric. Uh, no, go ahead, drink your drink your Coca Cola. We're not sponsored by Coca Cola. Just, just go ahead, drink. It. We no should part. be, and um, it's a fantastic. It's a fantastic beverage. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's probably going to be illegal in California pretty soon, but but I'm going to drink it. Weed's here, legal, but. Coke is illegal. <laughs> um, in case you guys are tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things ideas, creativity, innovation, uh, really dope people doing really dope things. Uh, I'm enjoying this outfit. Why don't you walk us through this ensemble t- uh, today? Oh, the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, um, we'll call it a uh, coastal cowboy, coastal cowboy. I yeah. like that. Yeah. It sounds like something out of, uh, like a bad B movie from the eighties yeah. with, you know, uh, Freddie Mercury started starring in it. Now, um, you know, we all have to have a look and it's, it's stunning out in LA. So I figure, you know, swimwear everywhere yeah, no, it's, it's, all the time, no dress codes in this town, you know, so it's, very fa- true. it's fantastic. You know, there's nothing like putting, you know, Swedish trainers with French swimsuits and a, linen shirt a, and a-, a propane hat that talks about America, but was made in China. It's so, Buster's propane. Buster's it's, propane. Shout out to shout Buster's, out to Buster's <laughs> propane. They're going to trend so much harder than they ever have in history. Exactly. Um, oh, so we got we we're trending on Twitter. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, real talk. Um, you are the founder, CEO, and president. And do I have all the three of those titles? So right? many titles. So many titles <laughs> of uh, of blue duck scooters. Other people have titles too. It's not like I'm just accumulating. <laughs> You're just the one person. I'm also head of accounting and uh, the engineering team. I'm I'm a I'm a figurehead. They just keep giving me titles, and I keep doing less. <laughs> actually so um i recommend it though it's a good it's a good way to do it so it is it sounds like it multiple titles just different business cards for different occasions absolutely so um tell us a little give us a little bit of the you know the origin story of an eric bell so um you want to start on the business side of it, or you want to well, start we on the... We can start with B- Blue Duck, and then we can expand, expand out. out. See? Okay. See how that works? So, uh, it's like orbiting the sun. You know, there's a thing going on across the planet, which is, uh, you know, a revolution in micromobility, which I apologize. When I say that, it puts me to sleep, too. So I like the phrase. Micromobility is um, a dumb phrase, but eventually <laughs> someone's going to come up with a better one. It's not going to be me. Um, um, we're, we're the largest electric scooter sharing platform in Texas. Um, we're the only company of note domestically. Um, there's about six or seven of us in the scooter sharing space that's not based in California. Um, yet here we are in California today. Yes. So um, the, the thanks for flying in just for this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> no, we're we're kind of um, positioning ourselves as the Southwest Airlines of the scooter business. Um, we believe a few things, which. Uh, is that scooter sharing platforms and mobility sharing platforms are going to be a part of the fabric of urban living for the full duration of our lives. We also believe that the world is like a pretty big place. Um, We come from a big place, which is Texas, which seems a long way away, but is an enormous state. And so our, our kind of strategic play is not trying to go and beat Bird in Santa Monica. That's like, seems pretty fucking dumb to us our play is to go and you know kind of conquer or you know take positions in territories 
that are really throughout the Southeast, what you would associate with, with like the SEC conference, right. if you will. So right, right. we're kind of like Texas first, Florida second, everything else in between. And we believe that that is in and of itself a incredible business. Um, and we have some data points that suggest, and, and we're coming to truly believe that micromobility doesn't just have the potential, but is very likely to be bigger than rideshare. And as we're seeing in the IPO process with Lyft and now with Uber, you know, rideshare is is is, is a big yeah. beast in the well, space. You, so you guys used a, a phrase, uh, at least in some of your collateral, which is the, the last mile. Um, which I think about like this idea, like, okay, I may have Ubered to a location or I'm here and I just got that one little bit to go, or maybe I want to go from one restaurant to a game or something like that. Um, where's that sweet spot for scooter usage, right? Where does it? <laughs> so there's a couple facets of this that we see in our markets. So there's like pure joy riding, which is usually like newer users, um, newer, younger users. Then there's markets, which we'll use because we're local to Santa Monica right here, that are very tourist-driven. You know, Santa Monica has 19,000 people, but it has millions of visitors every year that mm -hmm. drive up and down or scoot up and down Ocean Boulevard um, all day long. And then there is where we think this space ultimately lands, which is much more of a commodity or a utility, which is, um, as we've, we've seen from some market comparables, um, you know, Ford bought Spin for a pretty good valuation considering where Spin was at and their development cycle. And congrats to those guys. They're fantastic. But what we learned from that or what we infer from that is that Ford is smart enough to know that they're not in the automobile business anymore. They're in the transportation right. business and having a play in the micromobility and the sharing space is, is where they're putting, you know, almost half a billion dollars of cash from, That's from the crazy. acquisition yeah. cost to also what they committed to put into the company over a period of years. So from a development standpoint, the fact that automobile companies are, Maybe scared is the wrong word, but they're at least paying attention and putting money on the table there gives us a lot of confidence that that our assumptions about the growth in the space are going to be similar to the kind of growth profile that we saw in, you know, kind of 1.0 ride share, which is people were like, we don't understand these valuations. They're too high. Who's ever going to use this? How are they going to build, you know, vertical and horizontal platforms? And then you you kind of blink your eyes five years later and you're looking <laughs> exactly. at companies that are that are that are equivalently valued based off what people said could be possible five years ago. So um that's kind of where we see the space today. And and we think, you know, um there's a lot of folks. Um, sorry to be folksy. I'm from Texas. No, so like, I like it. Um, Eric's from Texas. Just the, so you know, the, uh, the other Eric. The, the, uh, the, there's a I don't lot know which of, one of you to call the real Eric. There but. are so many folks in the space <laughs> that are really focused on primary markets. Right. Um, and by and, folks, you mean companies, just for the audience. Yeah, yeah. Texas. I mean, and, that, and I get no, that. <laughs> yeah. I get like wanting to be in New York or London or whatever. Like those are fine places too. But um, we think a little differently about it um that's not meant to be like a steve jobs thing that's just like we're actually thinking differently no, no, about well that was actually what yeah. you know in our initial conversation i love the fact that you know as a challenger brand right it wasn't like the 
the names you hear most often, but your strategy and thinking is, as to how you differentiate from either, both from a locality standpoint as well as some of the business ingenuity you've sure well and we see it as a utility as a commodity to an extent as we get past the initial growth phase of this part of the sharing economy you know we think of which is also in our hometown you know san antonio texas um southwestern bell which is now at&t uh, was headquartered in San Antonio. It's the biggest telecommunications business on the planet by an order of magnitude. And they got there not by attacking primary markets. They got there by locking up secondary and tertiary markets. And they got so big that they eventually were able to buy out their yeah. competitors. So I'm not suggesting that's our corporate strategy. What I am suggesting is that like there seems to be a lack of respect for the economic engine that exists inside of secondary and tertiary markets throughout the South. Yeah. And so, um, and they're also underserved from a transportation infrastructure perspective. You know, we, we do a lot of things really well in Texas, but one of the things we don't do well is building legacy transportation infrastructure. And that's because we have a very low tax, low regulation environment. And, you know, people don't, want to vote for people who spend their taxpayer dollars building high-speed trains or even commuter trains or yeah. bike lanes or pedestrian access. So the deficiencies that we find in our public spaces in the South are actually much more pronounced than you find anywhere else because these cities initially were designed around you know horse paths, but mostly around the automobile. And what right. we're seeing is I kind of came into this with a like, you know, parking, congestion, traffic, pollution, like cool to deal with those things. And I mean that sincerely um, for the record, just because I'm from Texas, I'm a very progressive person. <laughs> also, um, uh, we don't want any misconceptions about, about my, hey man, my, my you allegiances. Have, you don't have to yeah. do any more disclaimers. We, <laughs> we, I, I trust you. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then also knowing that the public sector isn't going to be able to allocate public dollars towards really addressing those first mile, last Absolutely. mile solutions in a meaningful way. And that the private sector can come in and do that. And so it breaks down the partisan divide here, which is like liberals love it because of like one side of it. And conservatives are like, whoa, the private sector can come in and innovate and address these problems in a way that is kind of elegant and efficient and from a more free market perspective. But we're not in a free market in the scooter space right now. There's so much cash in the space. There isn't a sense of market equilibrium yet. But I think what we're going to see over the course of the next few years really is uh, kind of a fundamental rebalancing of not just urban spaces, but really of you know transportation sharing across platforms, being a part of not just Los Angeles, but being a part of places like Tyler, Texas, which no one's ever heard of. Like that's materially different than we saw. And there are places that we're looking at as expansion markets that like don't even have Uber and Lyft yet, if that gives you a sense of the context around like the development cycle of new technology right. and seemingly rural, but areas that are populated with tens or hundreds of thousands of people and tens of thousands of college students. And, and they're, they're, they have the same issues with, you know, parking and traffic and congestion and getting to class yeah. or getting to work as anyone else does anywhere else. So, um, and, you know, to do the like free market capitalist thing, like, their visa card shout out visa charges just the same as anyone else's so like customers are like <laughs> yeah. just equal across the platform but how you access them um how you cultivate them um is is kind of a diff we're trying to do that a little bit differently than than some of the other folks in the space no that's, that's all brilliant you know and just to put this in perspective right like uh, you know you guys 
got an 18 million dollar investment this is public information uh uh i hope no i'm just kidding it is (laughs) i found it on the internet it must be true um (laughs) be careful (laughs) (laughs) um and then another raise recently because i I think that kind of for some validates everything you just said so i'm curious as to early on right when you started the company what was that story you were telling when you were going to these investor conversations or even partners or employees at some at some point you're selling somebody ether right and then they then and then they go like they have to believe some of the things that you know and then you start to make those things true so i i I'm a philosophy major, so like I have no idea how we were able to impart um that level of confidence in the investor community by the way all of our all oh, that's that's inaccurate. So maybe on the internet or not, but it is inaccurate. The vast majority of our venture funding, both equity funding and uh, you know, with venture debt facility, which we raised, is all from Texas right now. So that's a little little different. Mm-hmm. Usually, big venture rounds aren't raised. Early big venture rounds aren't raised in cities like San Antonio, Texas. They're usually raised in San Francisco or Los Angeles right, or right. Santa Monica. Um, <clears throat> our story really was pretty simple, which is you know. We didn't invent the crystal ball, but we did look inside of it and we did feel like that this was the next major point on the sharing economy timeline. We felt like rideshare was the first point. We feel like this is arguably the second, at least on the transportation sharing mm-hmm. economy timeline. Um, and we don't believe that this is the end point on it. We believe this is kind of a, a continuum that's happening and 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 knowing the kind of market comparables across sharing platforms gave us the ability to to c- communicate that to investors in a way that I guess resonated and gave them confidence. And for us, it was a real, <clears throat> you know, gift without it being, I mean, I guess it was a gift, but with a lot of responsibility behind it and kind of allowed us to go around and um, what I call, you know, collect what I think are like the baddest motherfuckers on the planet to come and work for me because hardware is really hard. Software is doable. It's also hard. Integration between those two platforms is like maddeningly difficult for a philosophy major. But <laughs> really, we just all have been all in on talent. Yeah. Um, and we've had you know, people, my chief business officer left a company with 65,000 employees to come run a startup, you know, uh, we have people that we just got and yeah. all of the people on my executive staff I've known for years. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't like, uh, a, a going and recruiting thing via LinkedIn. It was really being like, Whoa, we have the luxury to build a world-class team and build world-class products and deliver them in a way that's differentiating ourselves from the kind of market leaders in yeah. the space. And if we can do that, we think we have a company that, you know, can be worth billions of dollars and, and the market is kind of, um, delivering that in the mechanism of results top line revenue and then also just pure growth and so all that's born true we're raising again which is why we're out here in california we've kind of actually it's a sign of success and also a little point of i don't know discontent which we've kind of like (laughs) outgrown our ability to raise in texas right from a venture standpoint and that's different for us that's different for startups in the south and so um we're just going to continue 
We're going to continue raising. You know, this will be our last raise right now. We're raising another, you know, 30 million bucks at a $300 million valuation. And then we're going to begin the process. Hey, Eric, can you go get my backpack? No, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm in. Yeah. And then the plan, the plan is though, um, after this round, we're going to go public because we think uh, retail investors um, see this in the paper every day. They see it on the streets every day. We think it's a hyper growth industry. And even large family offices in Texas don't have access to venture rounds at Sequoia or whatever. So like like the retail markets here are really interesting. The other thing we're trying to do, which is a little different, is we're trying to run a real business, like a business that makes money, not one that like hemorrhages cash all right. day long. I don't want to create any delusions like we're not hemorrhaging well, cash too. But- tries to create, or unless there's some like yeah. tax thing that I don't know about, right? But- um, it's and not to veer off, yeah. but I think about the like when this idea of like fail hard, fail fast, like yeah. nobody really wants to do that. And maybe that's I, I feel like that might be a coastal philosophy to to use a word that's in your world um, of like let's get in there and break things where you're like I want to I want to do this right, like I want to build a real company that functions well as often as possible. The unit economics around scooters, if run appropriately, are a really sound business. Just purely the fees relating to a scooter that you can accrue in an area where you have the right number of them and the subset cost of that scooter are and should be an 8x to 10x cash on cash return for every unit that you see on the streets. Uh, No one is experiencing those sorts of returns right now. And that's because there's so much capital in the space that people are literally, by people, I mean our competitors, are literally just buying equipment and throwing it at things. Because the metrics are number of things on street, not number of things that are generating returns. Well, we talked about that too in one of our earlier conversations because that that makes me think about companies like Ofo, right? Like Mm -hmm. out of China and like the bikes are littered. Like literally there's mountains of bikes because it was the same sort of model. But you talked a lot about the municipality and even on your website, it talks a lot about the responsibility that you take in, you know, making sure that there's X number per population, um, keeping that ratio in, in harmony and not coming in and damaging, like, the aesthetics, you know, best case of the city, and if not, like, the, the sustainability of it. So it's pretty easy to do and run a real business if you have – a slightly controlled environment from a regulatory standpoint. If you have an open framework where anybody can come in and they can drop as much as they want with a low fee structure, you get an economic model where you're getting, you know, a dollar to two per unit per day, Mm -hmm. which is not economic for anyone in the space, not even close to it. As, and as we believe, and we're all seeing most cities, big ones, medium-sized ones and small ones are running processes to have a limited number of providers, two or three or four, sometimes a limited number of aggregate units throughout that city. And they're figuring out the fee structures that work for them to be able to deal with some of, we'll call it the litter or the clutter, the accumulation of private property and public spaces that didn't exist previously because Dockless didn't exist at a global scale until, you know, 15 months ago, 16 months ago. But when you get into an environment where there is a sense of 
market equilibrium um, and some regulatory control, you can run a business that that is is one of the more dynamic businesses I've ever seen. I mean, if if my if my investment advisor came to me and said, "I can give you a 10x cash on cash return for the rest of your life," I would say. Uh, you're fired. Um, <laughs> that's impossible. Like it can't be real. Right. In fact, like no. Uh, yeah. Um, but but if run appropriately, um, this industry uh, will see returns like that. And we haven't even begun the process of monetizing other verticals in the space, which two are very important. One, I guess they're both kind of obvious, and I'm a little bit remiss as to why I'm not hearing this talked about more, but it also is one of the things that's very much resonated with our institutional investors is the data behind what we have from our users is like really powerful. We, we, we know like, we know like a lot about you, we know, like where you work, where you eat, who you hang out with, where you live. We have your credit card number. We have your driver's license. We have a lot of information. And, And what I'm saying is, is that that information will be monetized at some juncture. People will find ways to do it and they will find really elegant ways to do it from push notifications through the process of you arriving at places mm-hmm. and through incentive structures and just through, you know, which is a reasonable seg to the other vertical, which we're working heavily on. And also why we're in Los Angeles is advertising, which is, you know, we own tens of thousands of things that exist in public spaces. Mm-hmm. They are rolling billboards. And, you know, people don't like the idea of it, but I can tell you advertisers love the idea of having tens of thousands of things out on the streets that people see and interact oh, with and, and all that stuff. And so figuring out how to capitalize across those takes those, you know, pretty incredible returns on the fee structure side of it and turns us into an entirely different beast, which is where we get some of the inference or some of the suppositions about the potential for micro mobility to be like, like maybe the dominant player in the sharing economy, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah. No, I mean, again, going back to our you know initial conversation, we talked a lot about like, even when the birds popped up of the world and it was the rumor was it's a data play. Like it's, you know, the, the things that we will learn about how people operate in a, in a city or in a municipality, it's so key information, especially as we start to shift to smarter cities and the 5G, 6G even, um, conversation becomes, um, you know, we're, this is the early stages of being able to lay some other foundational work. So where do you see the expansion of not just the business, but the brand, right? If, if I can state it that way. Sure. So we'll start with the business, which is, and this wasn't my idea, but it has been percolating. It's actually an idea from one of our investors, or at least an inference, which is, frankly, I don't even know if I'll be a scooter company two years from now. That's how quickly this is unfolding. It could be a rollerblade company. Uh, that would be fantastic. Electric, Electric rollerblades sound less safe than scooters. <laughs> um, but I'm into it. I'll yeah. definitely do it. Unicycles. Uh, yeah. Quick, order me 20,000 unicycles. From the brand perspective, it's um, I'm kind of enamored with uh, old legacy airline branding and mm. also Texas history. So we're really trying to cultivate that sense of being a Texan 
company, you know, Blue Duck for those folks who haven't read the Larry McMurtry novels or seen the miniseries Lonesome Dove in the 90s was kind of the outlaw of that whole culture. And so um, what we're trying to do is, is kind of coalesce, you know, the Southwest Airlines motif around being a different player in a legacy industry and tie that into like real Texas history in a way. And Blue Duck was like an actual guy. He was like an outlaw in the old West. Like you can, you can look him up online and he, and, and he's, he's a really interesting, you know, historical figure. So tying that in, enhancing it, you know, we just released our second generation scooter which we're calling you know hashtag maverick um for a variety of reasons Um, mostly because my name is right in the middle of that word so like i need to make sure that all of our users know you know like i see what um but i was like what's this guy's name i can't can't spell (laughs) ask my staff it's all about me all all the time yeah Um, name cooter um So, so we spent a lot of time building, um, really, I mean, a lot of time and a lot of time in this space is like, you know, 10 minutes, but we spent, you know, four months building, designing, and now delivering what we think is the finest piece of hardware on the planet by an order of magnitude, including, you know, the market leaders. Um, and the industry is catching up, you know, our first generation scooter was essentially a retrofitted thing you could buy at Walmart or Toys R Us and drop a box and put some GPS units and custom book right. design a board and throw it out on the streets. Um, and that wasn't sustainable from a business model perspective, nor was it the best way to do it. So as we've learned through this process, we've gotten to a point to where we're building much better, more robust hardware that has you know almost double the battery capacity wow. as the others that is dramatically safer that is heavier that has all have all of its components that are internal so there's no external facing anything that people can mess with and we know that in a competitive environment which some of our markets are some of them aren't we know that users care about hardware um we hear people saying i choose you know lime over bird or bird over lime because of most of the time, the experience they have on the scooter. Do they feel mm-hmm. safe on it? Are they accessible? Is the pricing comparable? And, you know, do they do they already have the app or are they already integrated yeah. into that platform? And if you can check those boxes, you, you can build a really interesting business around that. So so we're we're in the kind of the process of doing that and continuing to do that until, you know, we think um we ultimately think this space uh, will consolidate. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it will consolidate down like Rideshare did to which is basically two dominant players. There's a reasonable case to be made that that's true. There's yeah. a reasonable case to be made that those two players, Uber and Lyft, will own this whole space. Yeah. And there's also a reasonable case to be made that it will be more decentralized, that pockets and areas and regional areas will have spheres of influence if you're in make up a city, Tuscaloosa, Alabama versus in Santa Monica, California. And so kind of working our way through that you know we think well, it's the, it, yeah yeah good no i was just gonna say because there's some thinking at least in sort of let's call it in the retail space right uh, especially for delivered uh goods and i did some studies on this but um looking at like the consumer preference is not what we sometimes think in business so sometimes it's like is it going to be guests or diesel jeans whoever can get me the jeans faster 
I'll pay the additional 70 bucks if it means I can get them tomorrow, right? There's this convenience factor that goes into it. Or one of my uh, a company I really love for something very specific is uh, Under Armour, uh, especially with their connected fitness platform, because they were like, we don't care if you use Fitbit or Jawbone or whatever, like our platform is ubiquitous. So I'm wondering like, where's the, and maybe I'm extrapolating too far, but like that app or that experience that goes like, I need a car. And it doesn't matter if it's Lyft or, you know, or what's the one in Austin, Ride Austin, you know, or whomever. Like, what my convenience is expediency and ease. So thinking through that customer journey, uh, and I don't know if I have a point there, but I think when you when you start to look at, like, um, the Lyfts ver- or the Limes versus the Birds or where the consumer experience is going to evolve or change or how are you guys are approaching that? What we're seeing right now. Which, which may shift, but it's, this is based off real data sets and, and reasonably large ones for us is that if you're first to a market, you win. If you're second to a market, you equally win, meaning you kind of parse it out either 50-50 or 60-40 or something mm-hmm. of those, depending on how many units you have and, and what your cost structure is. When you become third or fourth or fifth, it's it's not only not a good business it's like the it's the worst business of all time um and what that tells us is that you have to be the first or second choice on someone's phone when you enter a new market or you have to be the first or second choice on someone's phone when you get a license to operate in a market because right. those those regulatory structures that the ordin- cities are passing which are essentially municipal ordinances right. which are giving people licenses to operate there if you get one of those and you're one of two or one of three, um, it's it's a it's a workable economic model. Yeah. But when you get past that, it, it becomes um, uneconomic. And what we see, particularly in markets like one of our best markets where Buster's Propane is, is in Corpus Christi, and we actually like Bird pulled out of there recently hmm. because they weren't able to really compete against us and Lime, who are also there. So that tells us that it's not just our data sets that are reaffirming that, that there's like a broader understanding of, you know, how you parse out these cities. Now, the the real question is, is that does this consolidate on a a national basis where there's just going to be a Coke and a Pepsi, or is it going to be more regional or even hyper-local as to who the, who the A player and the B player is. And so that's kind of, that's kind of where we're coming from at it right now, but it's it's also, it's also shifting, you know, and the good news is, is that I can thank our friends at Bird and Lime and their investors because they just spent a billion dollars educating the American consumer about scooter sharing platforms. So there's like institutional knowledge in almost every city across the planet what this is, how it works, um, why it should be there, and be more importantly, you know, why it should continue to be a part of the fabric of the community. And that was a that was a threshold, which is this was so new and so disruptive. It, it did take time for you know regular folks, even regularly educated and progressive folks in places like California, to figure out like how is this going to work from a user standpoint, from an operating standpoint, yeah. from a from a local government standpoint, and just from a like. How do we do simple things like try and make sure these things don't pile up in front of wheelchair ramps? You know, stuff yeah. like problems that just hadn't been material before because there's so many more people well, who ride bicycles. Uh, so many more people, excuse me, that ride scooters on a daily basis than ride bicycles on a daily basis. Right. So. 
No, I, and that, I mean, it's the advantage of being a fast follower, right? You go, all right, I see you, where this could be improved, especially, I mean, you know, I know you have a lot of relationships with like just municipal relationships and business relationships in San Antonio. We'll get into that in a second. Okay. But what I was going to ask is like, um, as far as entering a market, my, my bird discovery or my whole, which was my entry point to scooters was like, somebody told me about it. And I was like, he's like, oh, you haven't seen those scooters? I was like, no, because they were, you know, they were on the west side of town. I don't, I don't live there. A week later, I, ne- I, I haven't seen, I haven't not seen one starting that following week, right? It was just kind of so there was no advertising. Like, I mean, the device itself is, you know, in fact, an advertisement because the name's on it and somebody's scooting. You're like, oh, where's that from? Um, and then there's all sorts of other ones. There's bikes now. There's all sorts of things. But when you look at the need to change people's behavior or become aware of this, you know, as a mode of transportation that's available in their city. How are you guys getting people like driving the adoption? Really what we're trying to drive is the product itself. When you enter a new market, the product itself, adoption happens almost in kind of like a Fibonacci sequence over a matter of days. You have to tell me what a Fibonacci sequence is. It's a so mathematical from, from your equation. F- yeah, it, it's basically <laughs> it's basically a number. It's it's spiral theory. So it's about, it's essentially an exponential curve, right? So day one, you know, people see it. Day two, they see it too. Day three, like people are using it. Day four, like right. twice as many people Got are it. using it. And, and then that, and that goes up. Eventually, it doesn't continue forever, obviously. Right. But eventually you reach kind of a plateau of what, market equilibrium looks like and it's pretty quickly we see it within like 14 to 17 days it's about what we plan for to get a market to a place to where it is economic on a daily basis for us to be putting equipment out every day what we're really trying to stay focused on because we do care is trying to help users riders um be better users of the technology you know and and that simply is that we believe that phone keys wallet in 10 years will be phone keys wallet helmet we think helmets will be a part of day-to-day living for people who live in urban spaces and that's going to take a revolution in helmet technology for that to happen and Part of the reason people don't wear helmets is vanity, um, myself notwithstanding, because my hair is not extra good. But the other well, part is I've seen pictures of you with longer hair. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, was... I grew it out. I grew it out so I could raise that big round. I felt like <laughs> I felt like it made investors more comfortable. Yes. If I had purple sunglasses yeah, you, you and a purple swimsuit your, on and long groups. and long hair, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But um, we we think one of the big problems with helmets, and there's a couple of people who are addressing them, a couple of companies that are addressing them, is people don't want to put something that's the size of a bowling ball in their backpack and take it to work. Yeah. So collapsible, safe helmets that you can integrate Let's into your DSF is collapsible. Collapsible. But, <laughs> I mean, like, like, like th- things, things that are. Things oh, I got the new not, collapsible helmet. You guys want to go for a ride? I mean, uh, look, no. I'm not. I'm not. A, <laughs> I'm cle- teasing. I get, but I get it. Like, clearly, I'm not an. <laughs> <laughs> but like, how many times do you see somebody put a basketball in their backpack in the morning? Like, it's just not a thing, you know? True. And so we think that over the course of time and over the course of people understanding, which cyclists have, because most dedicated cyclists, at least where we live, a helmet is a part of their life, right? Mm-hmm. But that was, that took time for that to happen. So we expect it to take some time for users 
to kind of adopt to that. And it's going to take, you know, the creative energy of you know, people smarter than myself to design helmets that can really integrate it them into your day-to-day life if you want to use it as a commodity. By that, I mean like my sister who lives here in LA just uh, decided not for the first time in her adult life to not buy a car. She's going carless, which maybe is a thing out here at home. It's absurd. Like no one would do that at home. But when you do that, you you have to be like, okay, well, how am I going to do that? Which means like, she works at Warner. She carpools a couple of days a week with her coworkers. Right. She Ubers a lot. She uses scooters a lot. She walks a lot. If she needs one, maybe she rents one. And it's not really an experiment. It's the fact is that owning even inexpensive, but certainly expensive automobiles from a cost return perspective, like probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And so finding ways to help users of scooters be safer throughout those platforms is going to be value accretive to everyone, the companies, the users, the cities, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to make our insurance rates go down, which insurance for us is like staggeringly expensive in this yeah. space in a way that like makes no sense because incident rates are actually comparatively speaking to bicycling, to driving in a car or to even just walking down the sidewalk. Incident rates are like actually pretty low on, on yeah. an aggregate basis, but just cause they're low doesn't mean you can't do things as an industry to help people be safer. I mean, the seatbelt didn't exist until Ralph Nader decided to make it so, you know, right. cars were around a long time before people were in a matter where automobile accidents almost all the time were fatal. And so the world's a much better place because of it. So we're going to try and do some things and partner, yeah. partner with some companies that can help users be safer if they want to, by the way, we, we don't want you we don't need you to wear a helmet if you don't want to. We're just saying like, we think it's a good idea. Yeah. If you're going to be on a motorized device on a sidewalk going to work every day and we can find a helmet that'll fit in your bag that you can use effectively. Inflatable sweatband. That's my, that's my contribution <laughs> to your, to your business right now. Um, and, and air, like a sweatband that has an yeah. airbag in it. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, just a quick little burst. It'd be a killer party. You gotta, trick. you gotta fall very, you have to be very strategic in how you fall, but no, I would. Lo- I would just love. I just love to use that at a party to just walk in and be like, Boom. exactly. <laughs> My head just exploded. This party is so <laughs> so lit right uh, now. Yeah. Um. You have a lot of speaking of heads. You have a lot of stuff in yours. Um. As far as like the data, the information, the cultural relevancy, the future of it, the impact from a you know just understanding the future of micro mobility. Um, what was, what was, (laughs) use your word, though you can't, um, what was your learning curve coming into this? Because obviously this business did not exist as in this stage. So like, what were you doing three years ago? (laughs) Cause you were like, ah, scooters, I got it. Um, so I'll go back to the, I went to Cambridge elementary. (laughs) Oh, cool. That's where you you studied philosophy. Didn't do well. It wasn't good. (laughs) Yeah. Socially or, yeah. Or from an educational standpoint. No, I, um, I was running my family, uh, venture capital and private equity, uh, office for several years still do, but in case anyone's out there, don't send us deals. I don't have time to look at them, but eventually when this is all over, I will be looking at them again. Um, I did some work in the energy space. Um, you know, particularly we did some, uh, takeovers of publicly traded companies, um, which was really interesting and really fun in the downturn, the energy downturn of 2014. Um, I started a few nonprofits. I started a think tank, uh, with the current mayor of San Antonio, uh, to really 
bring credit. His, uh, his name's Ron Nuremberg. Yes. He was a bodybuilder and also ran a jazz radio station and is a brilliant guy and he's doing really good things. But he and I got together when he was a city council person, started this kind of policy think tank wonky thing. Was to, it Think SA? Think SA, yeah. yeah, yeah. To, um, to really get people not just talking, but like getting actionable ideas to address like transportation, education, water, you know, and, you know, just generally technology related issues in cities that aren't like heavy tech where there's like a heavy tech ecosystem where that's already built into the yeah. fabric of the decision-making process. Um, and then as I told you, I started, I played in a band called national parks, uh, which was a jazz folk electronic, uh, kind of group that toured a good bit several years ago. And, um, you know, I used to write for relics magazine as a oh, music nice. writer in college. I worked for the string cheese incident in college. By the way, I'm having trouble yeah. placing this genre of music, jazz, folk, electronic. So, <laughs> so I had like a, I had like a really <laughs> incredible folk musician named Josh Glenn. I hope he hears this. Um, and I was a trained jazz and classical guitarist and I understand economics a little bit and being a classical or jazz musician is like not great. So I was like, how do we take this like institutional knowledge and turn it into something that's more modern? So I started running my rig into a whole series of computers and Ableton mm. live systems and doing lots of kind of um, like Nels Kleine, Will Coey, like right. texturing atmosphere so you had, stuff. You had an inventive spirit for a while. And, like even, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah which, which is, which is like, oh, it's a compliment. It's a, it's a, boy, is it a burden too. Let me well, tell you. I mean, look. <laughs> If LCD sound system can do it, you can too. So what we would do is, is he would play traditional folk music. I would take, you know, electronic music. And what we did was, um, completely free form. So we would play shows that there weren't any songs kind of in, you know, the manner of you saw some of the like crowd rock bands originally. Mm -hmm. And then we would play shows like, on Bill Murray's birthday, we would tease songs from his movies in and out with our catalog all night and never stop and call samples and do stuff. So by jazz, don't tell, um, you know, Wynton Marsalis that I'm a jazz musician. <laughs> He'd be like extra upset. But by jazz, I mean like heavy improv, heavy, like, like deep Got space it. kind of stuff that we were hoping because we never had delusions about selling records please don't go listen to our records they're not good um i think it's too late for that but um, <laughs> but but we we did natural parks ladies and gentlemen we, natural we, parks we did <laughs> national parks because they already messed it up uh, we we definitely could like get in a room and feel it hit and it was hitting because each of those experiences was unique every right. show was different everything was different and and there was like a sense of kind of uh, freedom and I hope like happiness or joy into it. And so our, our expectation as to how you could turn that into a business was to create like these platforms where people could come into a room without like knowing it was Bill Murray's birthday right? and walk out of there, you know, with uh, a sense of uh, appreciation for, for him. And hopefully maybe in a, like a limited capacity, the fact that, that we were able to like somehow weave the stuff together and, and make a, make a, human moment out of it what i love about that and you know is a i think in the jazz construct let's call it that so we won't upset winston 
Um, Marcelo he's so upset about people who don't play traditional <laughs> jazz. I love him. He's but phenomenal. There's something, there's, yeah. something, there's something like more so than, and this is my like rudimentary opinion, more so than most genres of music. There's something about connectiveness in that when you're like freestyling and that person's freestyling, you're freestyling, like we're all giving each other space and room, but we're creating one cohesive vision. Um, you know, I would imagine that philosophy goes into how you build a company. Um, but it, which my segue is that I want, I was curious, where does philosophy come into how you operate as a business leader? So I try not to think about it. I mean, I had like, I spent a lot of time. Isn't that what philosophy is? You don't think about it. I, well, I mean, you have to think like really hard. It's like music. <laughs> you got to think really hard about it and then like try and forget all of it. Um, really it's more, I actually have taken from a corporate culture and a leadership dynamic. I've really taken more from my musical career, which is I think about my executive team like a band. Um, and I think about it in the context of, you know, each person has a role to play. And when we go into a room, whether it's to pitch a mayor or a city manager, or we go into a room to pitch a fund manager, there isn't really a rubric. It is jazz music. You have to know each other. You have to know each other at a level which is not really intimate, but in a manner which is like so thorough that you know what they're going to say before they're going to say it. So you can craft a collective narrative about what you're trying to do, which can create, you know, we'll call it a song in this context, which resonates with your audience. And so I also hope, and this is like completely wishful thinking, but I'm going to try and do it. We believe, you know, that at least us, there will be a point in my life when I'm not in the scooter business. Um, I, I teased that like the first line in my obituary, maybe the second line in my obituary right now includes the word scooter, which is like kind of dumb. And, um, but it, I thought it was dumb at first. Now I have like an immense amount of pride around that because I think what we're doing collectively in an industry is maybe one of the more important innovations that's happened in a century. So knowing that it's just like, I used to like buy razor scooters at, at Toys R Us. Right. Yeah. So like knowing that I'm like somehow related to that industry is a little bit weird, but I feel like eventually, hopefully, um, uh, there will be a time when I get to go do other stuff yeah. and my band, my team that I have right now, um, is not industry specific kind of, as mentioned earlier. And I want to like, take them with me. That's like, it's, I didn't build them yeah, to be yeah. a scooter company. I built them to be like the best team in the world. No, and we, like, and we, 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 we want to go do other stuff like too. Like the Avengers, like whatever the mission whatever is at is, the moment, like like that's, what, that's yeah. what we're good at. We'll call it, yeah, we'll call it like <laughs> the, 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 the coastal cowboys or something. Yeah, yeah. You just, you just did it. Coastal cowboy adventures. Warner brothers. You can call me on that one. I'm ready. Um, you should get little Nas X to sign on as your artist in residence. Um, if you ever heard old town road with him and Billy Ray Cyrus, I highly recommend it. Uh, I didn't fully answer your question though. The, the philosophy part was really important and it was more important, not from a content perspective, but that stuff's interesting too. It was really more important from like a mentorship perspective. Mm. My um, professors and kind of the people that I interacted with through those departments were really formative in critical thinking, problem solving and reading and writing, which now everybody is like kind of heavy stem that's the only way to go yeah. if you want your kid to be successful and i think there's a lot of data that suggests that true but not at the expense of you know 
the humanities fields, which in my case have been incredibly valuable to my career. So I'm not trying to discount, like, don't tell your kid to go to not go to engineering school because he needs to, you know, be a lawyer or something. I'm just saying, like, if you've got people in your system who 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 are yearning for that sense of kind of like a more, you know, humanity driven development don't dissuade them because I was really lucky. And my parents were basically like, when you go to school, um, we don't care what you do. We just want you to go to school and we want you to do stuff that's interesting to you because we're worried if you're doing stuff that isn't interesting to you, you're not going to enjoy it and you're not going to do it. You're going to do something else and it's going to be detrimental. And so in my case, I just got into a pipeline um, where I really enjoyed, you know, heavy humanities and it's been hugely beneficial. So, um, so and I, I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I reference it. I reference it all the time. Unfortunately, we live in like a borderline post-literate society. So when I reference it, I just see him like that guy who's like in the back of the room, I you just, know, saying, I think it saying weird shit. Differently no, like, than it did, you know, like, I, I mean, I have a book on Socrates at home that, you know, and I have two kids. So I'm like, have you read I'm, it? Uh, <laughs> no, he's I definitely mean, not read, read it. from it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I read it, but, but I think like everything else it's evolved in a way where like Instagram quotes, right? Like, like it's not the full story. You need to really understand the humanities from the level of study, but the constant just sort of nudge like in your, in a feed where you're like, Oh yeah, dude, I did need to hear that message or that is true or whatever the thing is. I think it is just changed shape. It was, I mean, I'll be full disclosure. It like was limiting to an extent. I, I graduated from college in 2007. Um, as a philosophy major, which like, let's just be honest, like the world wasn't exactly like yearning for my professional skills, right? so, which is like totally fine. Basically, people were like, uh, are you going to law school? Are you going to business school? Are you going to wait tables at a restaurant? And I was like, I don't think any of those are a good idea right now. So I'm going to go do some other stuff too in right. the interim. But that that is the one kind of, at least to me, one of the limiting factors is it was a bridge. Yeah to where we are today it's hugely influential um to me personally um i don't touch a lot of it anymore yeah meaning i still have like the relics of the the material and stuff but um just like whatever learning scales or learning you know traditional gershwin standards or whatever well, you're, you're, it stays with you over time in a, in a manner that's not necessarily directly correlated with what you're doing yeah so. no it was and i find that a lot of innovators are renaissance people in their own right like they have multiple inputs whether it's music philosophy energy venture capital and now you know scooters and busters propane so it's <laughs> and, and you know for me it was engineering comedy you know writing marketing but and then eventually it culminates into a very unique perspective on how the world should operate um with that you've seen a lot of things um i'm not that old do i look old yeah uh, oh my no, god this, 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 <laughs> yeah you do this business this has aged me so much it's i was like did you say 2007 or 1977 <laughs> um <laughs> no you what have you seen outside of your own business, you know, in the world, maybe just on your trip here or elsewhere um, that you currently have an innovation crush on? You know, I'm so myopic right now. Um, I have things I want to do. Um, 
that are outside of this that aren't really based off my experiences of what other people are doing, just things that I think would be really interesting businesses. Um, but I don't have the time for it. And so it's not for a lack of yearning. It's just for a lack of bandwidth, yeah. really. And so in that sense... I mean, it could be something you've observed. It doesn't have anything you like, I, are personally involved it's, in. It's but. just hard. I mean, it's fun to talk about this stuff, but like, I can't overstate like this industry, this business, at least for me, and I can't speak for, for Travis or any of the other CEOs at their companies, but this is like, this is not recommended for people like, <laughs> it's like it's like a hundred hours a week we work it's, yeah. it's it's not good for your brain it's not good for like your personal relationships it's not good for like maintaining friendships it's all consuming because it has to be because it, it, there's no there's no platform where you can't be completely kind of all in on this right now so so, so but in that context there's still like a lot of other stuff i want to do that i have it's not an ideas book it's just like things that i think are interesting and i'm not saying what they are right now but um i hope to be able to get there in yeah. the, in the distant future so. so what so in that in that context what gratification do you get out of this right like if if the hundred hour weeks yeah. are taken away from like you said brain power stress yeah. family etc cetera, etc cetera, you know and alexis ohanian has been a has become a big advocate for like founder mindfulness right like the whole long work week porn that we all subscribe to may not actually be necessary or healthy which you just kind of said on your own but where do you find like your joy because you seem like a pretty well put together guy i mean it's, this ensemble is interesting but as far as <laughs> your spirit is intact <laughs> um so like where how do you bridge the gap between those yeah i just i'm gonna do the like the business school thing first i haven't been to but i don't know we can just do they probably teach this somewhere like if you're making an impact which transportation sharing is is reforming American and global cities. That's huge. Um, if you're enjoying doing it, that's like a plus. And if you're able to do it with people who are world-class and if you have to spend a hundred hours a week doing stuff, you're around some of the most brilliant people you can find. It's incredibly rewarding. Right. That would be the business school answer. The real answer is, um, you know, I, and this is going to sound, I'm, like self-professed a little bit arrogant and um and I, i'm like whatever acceptance is the first step i don't know what the other <laughs> steps are i'm sure. told there are steps but i'm like like accepting of that and like i don't have to work like i'm not doing this for some sort of an exit like this isn't about like building a big mausoleum somewhere or mm -hmm. something like i don't care i just like to do stuff and to build things and to do it with incredible human beings. And when you do that, um, it's one of the more rewarding things that I'm aware of, at least that I've experienced. And despite the internal and personal consequences of it, it's um, inescapable once you get into a pipeline like that. Like I can't imagine just going to some job and then, yeah. like staring at the clock and like i just wouldn't do it i would just go do something else right and so but this is like for me like a landmark 
moment in our generation. Absolutely. From a human standpoint and also from a technology standpoint that feels like um, it's worth the, the, the sacrifice to do it. So Well stated. All right. Breathe this entire conversation in. Whew. Um, a lot of good nuggets here. But uh, finish this phrase for me. Innovation to me is indescribable for me um, in the sense of innovation is a continuum of progress Mm. Um, and it is a massive net positive across economic thresholds, cultural thresholds, social thresholds, and political ones. And if you can bind those together, which we are in this industry collectively, um, you're in a pretty good space. I do want to put like a quick pen in this, which is um, I, I lost my voice yesterday. I don't actually sound like this. Sounds I'm, sexy to me. I'm, I'm not trying to do some sort of, I'm not some trying to do some <laughs> sort of like an Elizabeth Holmes impersonation. <laughs> Although she's great. Um, <laughs> I, um, and I'm also like with an immense amount of love and adoration for the legend, Diane Reem. I'm not trying to recreate her vocal career either. So um, if you're hearing this, um, I, I, I realize I do sound like a jazz singer and that's unintentional. I sound much worse, you know, most days, although um, it is a bit out of character. Um, well, thank you for the disclaimer. I'm glad the audience will now know. I'm not Elizabeth not Holmes. <laughs> this you're not exactly. That's assuming it is an affectation for her. I don't think we know that yet. So well, it's, it's still yet to be determined. Um, well, thank you. Where can people find out more about Blue Duck? You like where's the Fly Blue Duck cross handles? Um, we're in South Texas. Come see us. Hit us on social. Hit our scooters, man. I'm not joking around. People talk about having great hardware. Our hardware is unbelievable. I'm nice. so, so proud of it. And, um, you know, all we care about is, you know, building a business that is about creating great user experiences, which that goes back to your point about innovation. You can do that, be able to build incredible businesses. So that's exactly what we're going to keep doing yeah. for the foreseeable future. Well, thank you. Um, everyone, this has been another amazing episode of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time.